The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We'll be reading this morning from Judges 8. Uh, If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to start on page 195, if you're using the Bible uh, underneath your chair. We're going to jump around a little bit, so I'll tell you where we're going. We'll start at Judges 8, starting in verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Let's go down to verse 22, still in chapter 8. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. 
After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Haboth Jair to his day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have before us uh, this episode of Abimelech uh, this morning. And so what we're going to see as the author focuses on this character, a man named Abimelech, is really the main idea focusing on the silent judgment of God, the silent judgment of God. And so before we begin this morning, we need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word as we turn our attention to these verses before us. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Is it's the encouragement that uh, Pastor Tom often gives us during the pastoral prayer time, and that is to not just sit actively right now and hear me pray for you, or sit passively right now and hear me pray for you, but to actively engage right now as well, to pray for those who are around you, that they too would hear God speak clearly through his word as we seek to see Jesus this morning from this text. So let's pray for these things as I pray for you. Again, my encouragement is pray for those around you, and let's ask God to do only what he can do, which is change our hearts through the preaching of his word. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak this morning and move with power through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would cause our hearts to burn within us like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I'm asking that this morning as we seek to understand you, the judge, and the way you go about judging. would turn our hearts to see our need for the Christ. To see our need for salvation found in Him alone. Jesus, I'm asking that this morning you would open our eyes to see you and our absolute, utter, necessary need for you. I'm asking that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures before us this morning. Holy Spirit, please do that. I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would come and drench, immerse, so that the word, the double-edged sword, would do its job this morning of slicing our hearts bare, laying it open, And then you, Holy Spirit, coming and stirring us to repent. Stirring us to believe. Stirring us to confess our need for the Savior. Stirring us to see that Jesus truly is better. Holy Spirit, help us. I'm incapable of doing this, but by your power by your might by your strength we can hear from the living God this morning through his 
word. And I'm asking you to do that now through me. Set me aside, move me aside, merely turn me into an instrument that speaks explanations of your word so that we could hear you this morning, Lord God. Help us for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. Uh, if you're a comic book fan right now, your your life is good, right? Marvel's Avengers, Endgame, like right, the whole thing. Ten years of just pure cinematic glory, right? Any MCU fans? Oh wow, okay. There's like three people raising their hands. So either there's a lot of liars, or I'm re- we really are more in the minority than we than we care to admit. Uh, comic books, man, right? So think about this idea about the world of, of comic books. If you just think about sort of the premise of how uh, these storylines are written, it traditionally breaks down in, in this way. It breaks down into the familiar categories of good versus evil, right? I mean, that's one of the general ways that you can approach this idea of, of comic books, good versus evil. And we all understand how these familiar categories work. On the one hand, you have the hero who fights for good. And on the other hand, you have the villain who seeks to do evil. But in more recent times, if you go and you begin to search, what you'll find is there's all these sub-themes and these sub-streams in the world of comic books where the traditional storyline of good versus evil gets dumped on its head. So rather than heroes who fight against the villains, what you find instead are heroes who are the villains. Or you could say heroes who actually become the oppressors of the people for whom they are supposed to save, care for, fight to protect. And when we turn to our text this morning, this idea of a hero who becomes the villain, a hero who becomes the oppressor, is exactly what we find as the author turns the spotlight onto a man named Abimelech. There at the end of chapter 8, the author tells us that Gideon has died. He's done. His days of judging are over. And with his death, we learn that the people of Israel no longer remember the Lord, their God. Instead, they have done something else. They have once again turned from the living God, and they have turned after idols. They have turned specifically after an idol whose name is Baal Berit, whose name, oddly enough, means Lord of the Covenant. That's what Baal Berit means. So the people of Israel, we see, have totally abandoned Yahweh yet again. Yahweh, who is the Lord God, the God who keeps covenant, the God who keeps steadfast love, they have said to this God, we don't want you. What we actually want is this man-made scam that presumes to be the same as Yahweh. We don't want the Lord of the covenant. We want this man-made image who proposes to be the Lord of the covenant. Furthermore, the author tells us that the people have failed to remember all the good that Gideon has done for Israel. It's in this context that we will see the silent judgment of God on display as the author turns us to the hero who is the oppressor. This is what we see in chapter 9, verses 1 through 21, the hero who is the oppressor. 
Now, as we begin Judges chapter 9, notice that there is something glaringly absent at the beginning of Abimelech's story, and it's this. There is no mention of any oppressors harassing the people of Israel. Typically, we see a new episode begin with a mention of this thing we've been calling the Judges cycle, right? So whether it's Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, all of these, it's usually there's this typical cycle that takes place before we get introduced to the new judge that's going to come and deliver God's people. We see a mention of the people's sin. We see oppression by enemies from without. We see the people crying out to Yahweh. We see salvation come through a judge that Yahweh raises up in order to deliver. And then we see this inevitable period of peace. But when we turn to Abimelech, And with the mention of this man, notice that there is a complete departure from this sequence of events. And that's because Abimelech, one of Israel's own, has now become the oppressor from whom God's people need to be saved. In other words, the downward spiral of God's people has so descended to the place that it's no longer those from without that the people of God need to be saved from. It's actually those from within. Israel now needs to be saved from herself because you have an Israelite who is now going to become the oppressor of the people of God. In other words, Israel has now become her own worst enemy. And so with the death of Gideon, Abimelech makes his grab for power because remember, Abimelech is not a judge. Abimelech is actually the oppressor. And with the vacuum that was left behind in leadership by Abimelech's dad, Abimelech's, or uh, by Gideon, Abimelech's dad, Abimelech's sitting here going, I want what he's left behind, and he makes a power grab. With 70 half-brothers lurking around, these boys, these men could prove detrimental to his desire for leadership. So Abimelech goes to Shechem, goes to his mother's relatives in order to gain their favor, the text tells us. Abimelech's argument was essentially this. Listen, fellas, wouldn't it be good to have just one ruler? Seventy rulers, bad idea. One ruler, good idea. So he's like, wouldn't it be good to just have one ruler? And the sort of the idea is like, yes, they go like, it would be good just to have one ruler. And he's like, well, and if we're honest, wouldn't it be better to ensure that that one ruler is one of us? That's the whole idea of him arguing, hey, I'm your flesh and blood. Remember, Shechemites, I'm one of you. And they're like, yeah, actually, it would be good to have somebody who is like us to be that ruler. Then he goes on and says, well, actually, you know, wouldn't it be best if, well, maybe that one ruler were me. And with their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, we read in verse 3, the men of Shechem agree it would be good for you to be that one in charge of us. So, verse 4, they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed after him. And notice that for one piece of silver per brother... 70 pieces of silver from the the temple built to the idol, 70 brothers, very low value on life, just one silver coin, that's how much your life is worth to me, says Abimelech. Abimelech goes off 
with the intention of killing all 70 of his brothers on one stone. We read that he accomplished 69 out of that 70, and only Jotham, the youngest son, escaped, making way for my father is king to be crowned the king of Shechem. Remember, that's what Abimelech's name means, my father is king. Now he's the one who is king. But when Jotham hears that Abimelech has been anointed king, he goes to stand on Mount Gerizim. And he shouts to the people, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. And then he proceeds in verses 7 through 15 to give a parable that stresses something true about Abimelech. It's a parable that stresses the worthlessness of Abimelech as king. And it's a parable that stresses the foolishness of the Shechemites for anointing such a ruthless ruler over them. If you take the time and you work through this parable, Jotham is talking about olive trees. He's talking about fig trees. He's talking about this vine. And he's talking about this little thorn bush. And what you just need to know is that in Israel, olive trees, fig trees, grapevines, they held incredible value in the economy of Israel at that time. But one of the most worthless pieces of vegetation ever to exist now and then is something known as the bramble. And the bramble is just basically a thorn bush. It's short, it's scraggy, it produces no fruit. It basically exists as a nuisance, the bramble does. And this, as Jotham well describes Abimelech, he is a nuisance, he will be a nuisance, he brings no value, he is worthless, he is ruthless. So what is Jotham's point in telling this parable? Well, you don't have to wonder because he goes on in verses 16 through 20 and he explains it. He's basically saying, listen, the point of my parable is this sort of two-sided thing. I'm going to give you a blessing if one scenario is true. On the other side of the coin, he says, I'm going to give out a curse if this other scenario is true. So here's the point of my parable, he says. Listen, Shechemites, if you acted in good faith and integrity, verse 16... When you made Abimelech king, and we know you didn't, and if you have dealt well with Gideon in his house, which we know you didn't, and then you have done to him as his deeds deserved, which we know you didn't, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice over you. So here's the blessing side. He's like, listen, if you guys are on the up and up, if you were doing what God would want you to do in this scenario, you need to know this. May blessing upon blessing rain down from Yahweh himself because you're moving in the right direction. If you have truly been fair to Gideon's family in murdering his seven sons and installing this ruthless and worthless fellow as king, then may you find great blessing in the rule of the bramble. But, he says, if you have not been fair, which you haven't, then may this curse come as you and he get what you both deserve. Namely, fire that comes out from Abimelech, which devours the leaders of Shechem, and fire that comes out from the leaders of Shechem, which devours Abimelech. Now, when we read these verses, verse 1 through verse 21, 
Abimelech's desire for power, his aim to get whatever he wants when he wants it, his willingness to murder or at least attempt to murder 70 people, but actually murder 69 people in order to get what he wants. Our inclination is to read this and rightly shirk back a little bit at the kind of evil and wickedness that Abimelech is willing to perform in order to get what he wants whenever he wants it. I don't think we're supposed to read verses 1 through 21 and stifle a yawn. I think we're meant to read these verses and go like, this is, this is wicked. This is evil. This is sinful. This is not right. This doesn't sit on me well. Right? Because in Abimelech, what do we see? We see a man who feels that whatever he is going to get out of life, he is going to have to get it for himself. There's no reliance upon Yahweh whatsoever. If I'm going to advance in life, it's going to be because I've taken control of my life. Thank you very much. If I'm going to get this thing accomplished, I'm not going to trust in the Lord with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust in me with all my heart. I'm going to lean on me for my own understanding. Yahweh, out of the picture, I'm going to get what I want, when I want it, now God can take a hike. He's ultimately a man who was utterly determined to get whatever he can. Most people would say this, I want to be the guy in charge. Oh, but I've got to kill 70 people to do it. Most people would be like, eee, maybe I don't want it that bad, but not, not Abimelech. Abimelech's like, killing 70 folks to get what I want? No big deal. I will do this in opposition to God in order to get what I want. There's no waiting upon the Lord God for direction. In other words, Abimelech is a man who was tempted to do things in his own way in order to get what he wanted when he wanted it. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the main point of the text, but after reading these verses, verse 1 through 21, I do think we can at least slow down enough and ask ourselves this question. In my life right now, where am I tempted to do the same as Abimelech? In my life right now, where am I tempted to do the same as Abimelech? There's things that I want right now, and I want it right now. And I don't care what God has said about circumstance X or relationship Y. I'm going to do what I want to do right now. I'm not going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I'm going to trust in me right now. I know God said this, but this means I won't get what I want, and so I'm going to set God down, and I'm going to run right after what I want. Where in your life, where in my life, right now, am I being tempted to do the same as Abimelech? In other words, when it comes to areas of life, areas of life such as food, sex, relationships, marriage, children, Singleness, work, possessions, or whatever it might be. We should ask ourselves, am I driven with Abimelech-like desire to get what I want, when I want, no matter what it takes to get it? 
See, so for some of us, when it comes to food, there's just no self-control when it comes to food. We see some food in front of us, and we're like, I want it now. And we glut ourselves. And we don't live by the Spirit in the realm of self-control when it comes to food. For some of us, when it comes to the area of sex, we say, I know God says this is a good gift, and it's meant to be worked out within the confines of marriage, but I don't care because I want sex now. That informs the relationships then that we begin to have. If we're single, we go around hooking up. That might inform not what we do within our marriage partners between a husband and a wife, but it might then inform the way you want to entertain sex in your mind, and so it informs the website you go to, whether you swipe left or right. The people with whom you follow on Instagram all the while knowing that this probably isn't honoring God, but I want it now, and when I want it is now, and I'm going to do what I want in order to get what I want. So now all of a sudden, things like relationships and marriage, we're saying this, like, God, I know what it's like, according to your word, to exist in a relationship, a husband and a wife. I know what it looks like for a husband to lead his home. I know what it looks for, like for a wife to submit to respect, but I don't want to follow this pattern because I want to do what I want to do right now. Or when it comes to children, the world is full of advice that says this is the way in which you must rear, train, form your children. And some of it is good and some of it is right because it actually echoes and mirrors what God says in his word. But there is a whole lot of nasty that the world puts out in regard to the raising of children of which we as followers of Christ should have nothing to do with. But for the sake of expediency or for the sake of just doing what we want, when we want, we say, God, I know this is what you say as it relates to me parenting and stewarding and shepherding and discipling my children, but I'm just not going to fall your way because I don't want to do it. Where in our lives are we driven with Abimelech-like desire to get what I want when I want no matter what it takes to get it. That's a great question to ask ourselves. Or we could ask ourselves this, is my life more marked by grateful, joy-filled submission to the Lord's will and to the Lord's timing for my life? Abimelech-like desire or joy-filled submission to Yahweh? Listen, if you are marked more by the former, more by the Abimelech-like desire in certain areas of your life, what you need to know is this, that Jesus is so very good. He is so very merciful. And though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Therefore, right now is the right time for repentance. See, for some of us right now, the Holy Spirit is taking his finger and he is poking you in the chest saying, in this area of your life, you are driven with Abimelech-like desire. You look to the Lord God and you are saying, God, I don't care. You set him down and your area of life is being marked by a desire driven to do what you want when you want it in order to get what you want now. And the Spirit is poking you in the chest saying, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to throw yourself on the mercy of the Christ who is good, 
though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more, and the Holy Spirit is nudging you to run to Christ right now. My encouragement for you right now is this, do this. Repentance, when the Holy Spirit presses on your soul, is not something to be shirked in the moment. Because you're not guaranteed that that nudging will come again. That's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. Like right now is the moment of repentance. So if you're sitting there in your seats right now and the Spirit is poking on you saying repent now, you need to do that right now. Like you either need to get up and go out there, you need to bend your knees, you need to go around the corner, you need to do something now because it's not a good place to be where the Holy Spirit is nudging on you and you're just sort of shirking off like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it later. I've said this before, but Satan's greatest day, Satan's most favorite day of the week is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Because if he can get you to buy into, yeah, 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 I will do that repentance thing tomorrow. Well, guess what? You wake up tomorrow and it's now today and then you're buying an argument and say, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. And you just keep shoving it out and shoving it out and shoving it out down the line and guess what? That day never comes. Your heart becomes hardened to the things of the Spirit. And that's not where we want to be, saints. Jesus is merciful and though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Therefore, right now is the right time for repentance. I encourage you right now. I'm serious. Like if you need to do business with God in a certain area where you are driven by a Bimelech-like desire, you need to do something about it now. So in Abimelech, we see the hero who is actually the oppressor. But as the author continues to unravel the threads of his story, notice that he next turns our attention to the God of silent judgment. The God of silent judgment. Notice that with the jump from verse 21 to 22, three years have actually gone by under the rule of Abimelech. And we learn now that the leaders of Shechem have put men in ambush on the mountaintops and they're robbing travelers who pass by. And then this new character shows up down there in verse 26, a guy named Gaal, the son of Ebed, who moved into Shechem. So among the movers and the shakers in Shechem, Gaal, the son of Ebed, is a Johnny-come-lately. But notice that even so, the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. As we see, he's a very opinionated man. He goes to a party. It's the right time of the year where grapes are being harvested. Translation, it's party time, bust out the wine, and then apparently after several rounds of courage in a bottle, Gael begins to voice his opinions. I think he's drunk, and he doesn't like what's going on in Shechem, and he tells everybody about it. Look what he says there. Who is Abimelech, he begins to say, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubel, that is Gideon, and is not this guy named Zebul, his officer? Listen, why should we be the people serving him? And then you see him tip his hand. He's very Abimelech-like because then he says, would that this people were under my hand. He's not upset with Abimelech because he's like, hey, we need to be serving God. He's upset with Abimelech. He's like, people should be serving me. I would remove Abimelech, he says. If Abimelech were here, I would say to him, increase your army and come out. Basically, let's go and fight. 
So with some alcohol and a little persuasion from Gael, the citizens of Shechem switched their loyalty. They're no longer going to be loyal to Abimelech. They're like, we're going to follow this guy. But Abimelech, unlike the Shechemites, is fiercely loyal to his own cause. And starting in verse 30 through the end of the chapter, what ensues is a barrage of vengeful murder. With the help of Zebel, his officer, Abimelech crafts a plan for an early morning rush upon the city of Shechem. He's there to pay retribution. And in short order, verses 30 through 41 tell us that Abimelech waylays the opposition and runs Gael out of town. And then you continue on in verse 42. We read that on the following day, the people of Shechem went out into the field... My guess is they presume the worst of the battle was over, right? So like on Monday morning, Gale's coming out. He's like, there looks like stuff coming down from the mountains. And Zebel's like, no, man, you're just seeing stuff. And he's like, no, 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 I'm telling you, there's people coming out of the mountains. And he's like, where is your mouth now? And then Abimelech shows up, kills some people, and runs people out of town. That's Monday. The next day, Tuesday, my guess is the people woke up and were like, whoo, glad that whole Abimelech Gale thing over with. They're like, what are we going to do? Well, let's go back to what we do every day. Let's go back out into the field and start farming. They go out there and they start farming. But as they were farming, Abimelech was still fuming. And no sooner had they reached their fields than a group of Abimelech soldiers rushes down from the hills again, seals off escape into the city. They go and they close off the gate. So now everyone is caught out in the fields. And two other groups with Abimelech go out and massacre the workers in the field, verse 44. Then they captured Shechem and killed the people who were in Shechem. And then ultimately destroyed the city, sowing it with salt. So now what you have is an entire city annihilated by the vengeful anger of, of one man. Unfortunately, the mayhem continues as over a thousand Shechemites took refuge in the temple of their idol in the stronghold of the tower, verse 46. But Abimelech would not be outdone by a tower, and so his revenge drove him to burn down the stronghold with fire, killing about a thousand more men and women, fulfilling the curse stated by Jotham in chapter 9, verse 20. You remember what the curse was? He's like, listen, if you guys did wrong in this, if you're not following God, may fire come out from Abimelech and devour you all. And that's what happens. He cuts down some wood, lays it on the base of the, the tower, lights it on fire, scorches it down. Fire came out from Abimelech and scorches down the people of Shechem. But notice that Abimelech's bloodthirsty tower days are not over. He goes on to capture a city named Thebes. You're like, where in the world did Thebes come from? Like, is he just on a killing spree? I mean, is he like, well, got one, might as well go get another. Maybe Thebes showed up in order to help out the Shechemites. Or maybe they, were, they said, we were loyal to you, Abimelech, but now we're no longer loyal to you. We don't know. But what we know is that Abimelech went on to capture Thebes, and he's a pragmatist. What worked in one city should work in another. So when all these people go run into a tower, what's he do? His plan is to go burn down this tower with fire as well. 
But as he's doing this and putting his plan in place, notice that a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull, fulfilling the other half of the curse stated by Jotham in verse 20. The leaders of Shechem, with some help from Thebes, devoured Abimelech. Just as an aside, I'm just trying to figure out what was this woman doing carrying a millstone in her hand? I'm like, I'm just sitting there thinking, going like, right? Abimelech's coming, and like the, dad, the husband's running. He looks back, his wife's like carrying this thing. Like, Why are you carrying an upper millstone? It's like, baby, we don't know, man. We might need this thing. You don't know. Well, you know, the Lord moves in mysterious ways because this certain woman got to employ her, her weaponry of the upper millstone crushing the head of Abimelech. That's just a funny picture to me. I'm telling you, man, your Bible, Bible's got humor in it, okay? And judges... For all the um, insanity and the wickedness you see, the author, I think, is, is pointing out some of these things. Well, Abimelech, we know, is a pride-filled man, and he ain't going to let his death be by the hand of a woman. So what does he do? He looks to his armor-bearer and says, you need to kill me now. I don't want nobody saying that I died at the hands of a woman. And so his armor-bearer pulls out the sword, runs him through. Story's done. Do you notice that? The story just ends, flat-out ends. Next. Now, usually when we're reading our Bible around 6.37 in the morning and we're barely half awake and we're reading this, we're like, this is insane. What on earth is going on here? But I want you to think about this question in order to unravel the enigma of what is going on here. Think about this question. Listen, where is Yahweh in the midst of all of this episode? Where is Yahweh at in the midst of all this episode? Did you notice it? Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. But if you go back and look, what you will find is that between Judges chapter 8, verse 34, all the way through Judges chapter 10, verse 6, the name of God, his covenant-keeping name, Yahweh, is not mentioned once. Not once. He's not mentioned at all by his personal covenant name, Yahweh. Not a single time. In the previous episodes, if you go back and work through Judges 1 through Judges 8, Yahweh is interacting with folks all over the place, right? Fleeces and whittling the 32,000 down to 300 and angels of the Lord and he's speaking and all these sorts of things. It's Yahweh this, Yahweh that, interaction this, interaction that. You come to Abimelech, silence. Pure, utter, absolute Silence. But lest we draw a wrong conclusion, listen, though God is silent throughout this episode, what you need to know is that he's most definitely not absent in this episode. You see, in our lives, we sometimes mistake the silence of God for his absence. What we do is we ask God, we seek God, and for whatever reason only known to Yahweh himself there is silence and what we begin to do is we draw the conclusion well if he is silent then he must be absent he's not around he's withdrawn he's far and he does not care but just because the Lord God is silent does not mean he's withdrawn in our lives we have to have a category for the silent 
presence of God because that's what we see here in these verses. Now notice that in the telling of the Abimelech story, I skipped a few key verses where the author pauses long enough in order to lift the curtain back, so to speak, in order to show us a glimpse of what God was doing in the midst of this whole Abimelech episode. So if you go back into verses 23 through 24, the author is saying Abimelech this, Abimelech that, Abimelech this, Abimelech that. Then he comes to verses 23 and 24, he hits pause, and he's he pulls the curtain back a little bit. And as the author, carried along by the Spirit, he says, what you need to know is God is up to something here. I understand that he's silent, but he's not absent. He is ever-present, and this is what he's doing right now in this moment. 23, 24, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. That can be a sentence that will spin out a community group like no one's business. But what's going on here right now is the idea behind the word is that there was evil in the hearts of Abimelech. There was evil in the hearts of the people of Shechem. And God is saying, if evil's what you want, I'm giving you over to it. That's what God is doing right now. And he's giving them over to it so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Gideon might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech. Then, boop, he pulls the curtain back. Abimelech story, Abimelech story, Abimelech story. There he is. Skull crushed, run through with a sword, verses 57, 56. Abimelech is now dead. The author does it again. Pulls the curtain back a little bit. He says, let me tell you what's going on behind the scenes here. God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. So as we work through Abimelech's story, let's not miss what was really taking place, the silent judgment of God. Do you see it? Do you see what was going on? In silent judgment, God gave evil Abimelech and evil Shechem over to their evil. And in doing so, the Lord God used evil to destroy evil in what seemed like the natural course of events. That's what's so amazing about Judges chapter 9. When you're reading it, it's just the normal details of life, right? This guy moves into Shechem. They're having a little party. They're drinking a little wine. They don't really like the leadership that's going on. It sounds maybe sort of like modern day, right? Hanging out with some friends, a little eating, a little drinking. I don't really like what's going on with the government and all these sorts of things, right? That just seems like the normal events of life. But what's going on? God is ever-present, although he might be silent. And he's doing this all in what seems just like the natural course of events. Notice, there's no heavens being torn open. <laughs> There's no smell of fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no plagues being sent from Egypt. There's no voice in the wilderness. There's no prophet saying, Thus says the Lord, you're in danger of being judged. You guys are running headlong into evil. It is going to go wrong for you. Sin has consumed you. You're going to get your just reward for sin. There's no prophet saying, Stop, please stop. There's just the silent judgment of God, divine judgment being played out in utter silence. You jump into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul taps into this very idea when you begin to read Romans chapter 1. 
after telling us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.18. Paul then tells us how God is revealing this wrath. How is he revealing this judgment? In Romans 1.24 and following says this, Therefore, this is how God is revealing his wrath, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts and so on. It's that little phrase right there. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Do you see what he's doing? This is the passive, silent judgment of God. The people of God, the people in Romans 1, the people in Judges 9 were saying this. No God, I want what I want. 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 Eventually God says, brother, you get it. You're going to get it. This is what you want. I'm letting you have what you want. And the Bible categorizes that giving over as not the active judgment of God, but the passive, silent judgment of God. To me, friends, to me. That verse right there, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. This is one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. Because the people on the receiving end of the silent, passive judgment of God are doing this. No, God, I want what I want. Nothing's going wrong. No, God, I want what I want. No repercussions. No, God, I want what I want. Everything's going great. Everything's going good. There's no heavens ripping. There's no fire and brimstone. There's no prophet saying, thus says the Lord. There's no one saying, repent and believe. And what we begin to do is draw the wrong conclusion that because there is no heavens being torn open, because there is no active judgment of God, God must be totally cool with this. And so we just keep running headlong in the path that is an opposition, sin-filled opposition to the ways of God. And we presume to think because there's no active judgment, no major collision in life, God must be totally legit with this, all the while not realizing that we could be in the place where God is going, brother, I'm just giving you over to what you want. And that is the silent judgment of God. Again, this was the place Israel was in. I think this is what we're seeing in Judges chapter 9 that rather than the active judgment of God, what we have to understand is that at times God will act in passive, silent judgment by giving people over to the very sin that they want so badly. This is where Israel was. But again, look at the great grace of God who sent the judge who saves Look at chapter 10, verse 1. In chapter 10, verse 1, we read, After Abimelech died, Tola arose to save Israel. Tola arose to save Israel. Do you know what chapter 10, verse 1, do you know what this is? This is the sheer an absolute grace of God. 
the sheer and absolute grace of God. Because when we ask ourselves, who did Tola rise to save Israel from? Chapter 9 gives the answer, Tola saved Israel from themselves. That is, Tola saved Israel from the sin and its consequences that we saw in chapter 9. You see, if the Abimelech episode shows us anything, it shows us that the enemy that lies within, the enemy of sin, is why we need a Savior. We, like Israel, need to be saved not from what's around us, but we need to be saved from what's in us. We need to be saved from our own sin. Listen, sin is a spiritual cancer. It's a spiritual cancer, and unless Jesus, the great physician, has healed you of your sin disease, then right now your greatest problem before a holy God is not all that stuff out there. Your greatest problem before a holy God right now is you. It's you. It's the sin disease that resides in you. Again, the Apostle Paul taps into this very idea when he writes to his friend Titus saying in chapter 3, starting in verse 3, these words. For we ourselves were once foolish. So you see what he's saying here? He's like, we ourselves, this is what we once were. This is what used to reside in us. This is what used to consume us. This is the sin disease and its descriptors of us before King Jesus saved us. He says, we ourselves were once foolish. Foolish concerning God, disobedient to God. We were being led astray from God. We were slaves to various passions, slaves to various pleasures. We passed our days in malice. We passed our days in envy. We were hated by others, and we went about hating one another. Look at verse 4. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Do you think your, your, your spiritual sin disease gets cured by you? The cancer of sin gets cured by the great physician. He saved you. He acted toward us. It's not we saved us or we saved him, but it's he saved us. Why did he save us? Well, it's not because you did anything so great. But look at the end of verse 5. He saved us according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. He saved us by the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. So what is the cure for the sin disease that resides within you? Like this is the question. What is the cure for the sin disease that resides within you? Hear this. The cure has nothing to do with you. Rather, the cure has everything to do with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who saves according to his mercy, saves according to his washing, saves according to the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is the question you need to write down, and this is the question you need to wrestle with right now. 
Has the Holy Spirit renewed you? Has the Holy Spirit renewed you? Has he renewed your spiritual eyes to see the transcendent beauty of Jesus? Before the Holy Spirit renews you, you don't see Jesus as beautiful. You see, as, you see him maybe as a good guy. You see him as someone that, like, yeah, I did some great stuff. Maybe you don't give a rip about Jesus. But until the Holy Spirit renews you, your eyes will not see the transcendent beauty of Jesus. Has he renewed your mind, the Holy Spirit, to understand that Jesus is your only hope of salvation? Has he renewed your heart to feel your need for him? Has the Holy Spirit done these things? Because if you're over here going, you know what? The Holy Spirit hasn't, hasn't renewed my heart to feel my need for him. You know, I, I, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. But in general, I think I can get along without him. I don't know that I, I, don't know that I desperately need him. Then I'd argue that you haven't been saved by Jesus. Has he renewed your mind to understand that Jesus is your only hope of salvation? If you cannot say, my only hope is built on Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. When I stand before God on that final day, my sole answer to God's question of why, John, should I let you into my eternal kingdom forever if I say anything else other than I shouldn't be let in, my only hope is Jesus Christ alone. If you cannot say that as a result of the Holy Spirit renewing you, then I would dare say that Christ has not saved you. Has he renewed your spiritual eyes to see the transcendent beauty of Jesus? Is Jesus more precious to you than anything the world could possibly offer? Has the Holy Spirit renewed you? Listen, you're here this morning in one of two places. You're either here in the place of not on the receiving end of the active or passive silent judgment of God because by faith you're looking to Christ who took the wrath of God for you. That's your hope right now. Your hope's going to be, I mean, I know what I deserve. I deserve the judgment of God for my sin. But praise be to God that the son who died on the cross bore my wrath. He stood in my place so that I can now stand before God and say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He bore my wrath for me. Or you're standing here this morning and you are on the receiving end the active, silent, passive judgment of God because you don't have a Savior who has saved you from your sin. And you're going to stand before God one day and the wrath that could have been absorbed by Christ will be absorbed fully by you. And the result will be eternal punishment in hell. Here is my encouragement for you this morning as we roll over into a time of response. If again, the Holy Spirit is tapping you on the chest right now saying, dude, you're in that latter category. Today is the day to respond. I'm telling you, Satan is trying to spin you a story right now. Do it tomorrow, man. Do it tomorrow. 
so that tomorrow you can wake up and you can say, do it tomorrow. But some of you, the Holy Spirit is tapping you on the chest, and here's my encouragement to you. I'm going to be standing in the back back there, and I would love to begin a journey of walking through the Bible with you to show you who Jesus is and what he came to do so that we can consider and count the cost of what it looks like to give our lives to Christ and follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For some of us, the proper response this morning is going to be for you to come up, take of the Lord's Supper. It's going to be for you to come and take from either the two tables in the front or to take from the table in the back. And what you're saying is this, by taking of the elements, Jesus has died for me. The little cup of juice represents the blood poured out by Christ. The little piece of bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. And so when you take that little cup and you pour out the juice into your mouth, what you're saying is, I am proclaiming this. The blood of Christ that was poured out of his body washed me and made me clean. When you take the little piece of bread and you begin to crunch it within your teeth, the idea is this, is that you begin to remember the body of Christ that was crushed and broken for you on the cross so that you might know salvation. That's a proper response for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're like, man, that's not me. Like, I, I know I'm not right with God. I am not trusting in Christ alone. Then our request of you is not just sit there and do nothing. It would be, don't take of the Lord's Supper, but it would be, do this, would, would be this. Talk to God this morning. Say this simple prayer. God, from what I heard this morning, what do you want me to know true about your son, Jesus? And I'm telling you, Jesus will make an answer as clear as day to your soul. So as the band comes and begins to play, why don't you guys go ahead and stand up on your feet. What I'm going to do is pray for us as we transition and then we will begin to respond either in worship through song or in the taking of the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. King Jesus, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the good news of the cross. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is merciful and gracious. He is a Savior who loves to save sinners. So, Father, now as we transition into a time of Worship as we transition into the place where we are going to respond to all that we've heard this morning, I ask that you would do only what you can do, and that is speak, save, draw us close to you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus as beautiful. Open our minds to understand our pure and absolute need for him. Draw our hearts, draw our hearts close to the Savior. It's in your name I pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.